Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. day of the year so far so I'm very glad to be sitting inside in my cool flat and talking to all of you venters. This podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me your host Freddie Cocker. Each pod I check in with a very special guest. We have an answer about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health we'll discuss it. Ever since I got acrylics artist and all-round legend, Carl Hawker, on the Just Checking In pod, I've wanted to interview more artists on here and find out what makes them tick. So for this week's episode, I'm checking in with award-winning fine artist Sophie Green. Sophie is a conservation and wildlife artist who specialises in capturing the photorealistic details of animals and their surroundings. Sophie has dedicated her time and artistic work to raising awareness for issues surrounding animal welfare and the environment. Sophie donates 10% of her profits that she makes from painting to wildlife and conservation charities and has worked closely with foundations such as the International Fund for Animal Welfare and Explorers Against Extinction. Sophie was the winner of the Leisure Painter People's Choice Award, that's a bit of a mouthful, for 2020, and was shortlisted for prizes such as the Sketch for Survival Award, the DSWF Wildlife Artist of the Year competition, and the Ashurst Emerging Artist Prize. In this episode, we discuss her artistic journey, dealing with artist block, how her videos contain a ASMR element that help her followers, we'll explain what that is in the podcast, why she is so passionate about wildlife conservation, work-life balance and taking the plunge to become an artist full-time. We also discuss her mental health journey. So for some of her childhood, Sophie lived with a speech and language communication need and anxiety disorder called selective mutism. This affected her during nursery and some of her primary school years and could have had a big impact on her education and mental health if she hadn't have overcome it. Grief is also on the menu as Sophie lost her mother when she was just 19 years old. We talk all about that and how that affected her mental health then and now as an adult, as her way of processing that trauma left severe memory gaps as well, which we'll discuss in the pod too. So this is how my check-in with Sophie Green went. Just one more thing before you start listening to the podcast. Uh, I've just got to say that... When I started the editing process for this one, I realised that I'd made a massive cock-up. So when you're listening, the audio is a little bit worse on mine. It's very good on Sophie's because I forgot to turn echo cancellation on. I thought I'd include this because everyone makes mistakes as audio producers, especially me. So that's what you'll hear as you listen to the podcast. But hopefully next week's will be issue free. Here's our conversation. Sophie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for coming on and letting me check in with you. How are you? How is artist life not in lockdown now at time recording or? Yeah, I'm great. I think that life is pretty much exactly the same post lockdown as it was during lockdown, if I'm honest. I'm still just sort of locked away painting. So um, yeah, I can't complain. Can't complain. Have you felt any difference? I mean, the only difference really has been that I've been allowed to sort of like go out and see people and see friends. Also, the weather's been much better over the last sort of week or two. So it's been a lot harder to stay in and be strict with myself and paint inside because I paint with acrylics I kind of can't really paint outside because they dry within about five seconds yeah it's really really tempting to be like I'll just go outside for like five minutes and read my book and then five minutes turns into like most of the day so that's kind of the only difference for me really but um yeah it's been pretty good yeah it's a similar process for editing I think when I start editing I'll be like I'll do editing for about an hour and then end up being there for like four hours right we've Got a lot to get through on this pod, Sophie, and part of your journey is something I actually haven't discussed with guests before, so I'm really excited for this one. So shall we just start the show? Let's start the pod by talking about your artistic journey, Sophie, and how you became to be the fine artist you are today. Before we talk about 
you know, Sophie Green Fine Artist, the brand. Can you tell me how you got into painting or drawing and when you discovered you had this talent? Because it wasn't something you did much in school, was it? really no I mean I did do art in school up to sort of GCSE level but to be honest I think I kind of clocked out during the lessons I wasn't really that interested in doing what the teachers were telling me to do most of the art that I did for pleasure was at home with my older brother who was he's about 10 years older than me so when I was a child he would have been in his sort of like late teens yeah we used to just sit and draw together or paint together and he would give me pointers and that's where I really discovered my passion for it but yeah when I was at school I wasn't really that interested I didn't get particularly great grades if I'm honest I wasn't really that fussed about sort of like looking at other artists and sort of trying to mimic other artists style I just wanted to do my own thing and I think that's quite common for some artists so yeah I didn't go to art school or anything like that and I just did it in my spare time for fun. You started the journey as a side hustle, as I guess all us wannabe creatives do. When did you decide to focus on wildlife and animals? And where did that sort of innate desire for conservation come from, do you think? Did you know it was always going to be your shtick, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's only ever really been animals and wildlife. I didn't really go through a phase of trying to discover what it was that I wanted to do. I've just never really had any passion for any other subjects of art really wildlife animals and nature in general is what excites me I have had a go at sort of like figurative art and portraits of people and some abstract and stuff but it's really hard if you're not passionate about something to kind of put your all into it so yeah for me it was always animals I mean ever since I was a child I was absolutely obsessed with animals yeah almost verging on obsessed I would sort of see a a cat in the street and like run over and grab it and then get like really badly bitten stuff like that it was just an obsession for me I didn't really care about the dangers of like running up to foxes and stuff and trying to like stroke them so yeah and it's not like I grew up in like a particularly wild environment I just lived you know the suburbs but I don't know why I was just really really interested in animals I would sort of beg my mum to buy me um, books and encyclopedias about animals back when encyclopedias were a thing and we didn't have wikipedia (laughs) yeah i used to just sit and read books about animals in my spare time so yeah seemed like a no-brainer well i'm glad you didn't run into any badgers because i think that would have ended quite badly if you tried to do that along the journey has there been one particular piece of work which has meant a lot to you from a a mental health perspective or maybe a creative perspective whether that's one you had to work really hard on to produce or or maybe one which captures your personality or artistic style the best Mm. yeah it's a good question I think there are definitely a few one that comes to mind would be the march which is it was a lot like a wide 120 centimeters by 60 centimeters painting of a group of penguins marching along in a snowstorm The whole piece was just, it was a challenge because I think in total there are about, I might be wrong, but roughly around 82 penguins in it that I had to paint. And it was very repetitive, like one penguin after another, after another, after another. So I just kind of tuned out. And I think at the time I was a little bit low. I think we were going into our third lockdown. So I'd been in lockdown for like a whole year at that point like just alone in my cabin studio painting and when you sort of paint something that requires a bit more grey matter you can really get involved in it but when you're doing something over and over again and it gets quite repetitive you can kind of zone out and let your brain just wander and I think when you do that enough it can get a little bit taxing on your mental health maybe when you start focusing on like some of the negative aspects of what's going on in the world and aside from that because I was just painting the tiny tiny details all day every day I started developing like real issues in my wrist in my tendons in my wrist and then I was stressing about that the whole time and I was going through all these different ways of trying to fix that like trying all these different methods and exercises and wrist braces and CBD oil I was just trying everything and I was really stressed at the time because I knew that I needed to finish this piece and I wanted to sort of enter into some competitions and stuff like that so yeah I think that piece when I look back on it 
the fact that I'd finished it, completed it, and then it later got shortlisted in the David Shepherd Wildlife Artist of the Year competition and got highly commended, it was sort of like one of the most rewarding for me because it took a lot to complete for me, both physically and mentally. And yeah, now it's got the sort of recognition that it, I think it deserves. <laughs> but yeah, I would mm. say that one. We're going to talk about the industry a little bit later, Sophie, but just on this, I guess self-acceptance is something which a lot of artists and fine artists maybe struggle with or definitely have some sort of perception of whether it's on the lower end or the higher end of the spectrum. Has there been a comment or a piece of validation that you've gotten from a, a family member or follower or, or maybe even a critic, which has meant a lot to your mental health or made you more accepted as you've kind of navigated this journey from a side hustle into a, into a full-time thing? I was thinking about this actually the other day and there have been a few comments that have stuck out really positive like even going back to the the march that I was just talking about the judges comments that I got from that for getting highly commended were really really positive I think it was like sort of unanimously liked by the judges which is quite rare and it really gave me a boost but then when you get a comment like that it gives you a, like a great boost for maybe like a few days or a week and then you just go back down to your normal level and yeah I was just thinking actually it's the comments that I get every day from my followers that really keeps me going and spurs me on because I have the best social media following and they're the most supportive people and I could get a really great comment from an art critic or a judge or someone of great you know high status so to speak and that would be great but it's the comments every day that sort of allow me to keep going and doing doing what I love. So I'm really uh, grateful for them, I think. One of the reasons which I wanted to get you on the pod, Sophie, is because when you post video updates, when you're working on a particular print, it's very much ASMR or kind of painting as journaling. And when I had a deeper look, in many ways, it feels akin to when people journal about their mental health and how regular they are and how you post them. Is that a fair comparison? And can you just explain what ASMR is as well for listeners who might not know? I'm not an expert, but from my understanding, ASMR is, oh God, I can't remember what it stands for. Now. It's like auto, no, audio. Autonomous so, sensory meridian response. There you go. <laughs> There's no way I would have been able to uh, just reel that one off. But yeah, it's basically when you see something and you hear something and it kind of gives you like the shivers is how I would describe it. It's just something that's very pleasant to watch and listen to. I put a lot of effort into my videos and I spend a lot of time thinking about which song I'm going to put alongside it and stuff because music's like a huge part of my life. And it always has been since I was really young. I listen to music as well when I paint sometimes and... I might be listening to a certain song whilst painting and then I'll put that particular song in the video or I might just go with something that's lyrically fits or something. But yeah, a lot of people comment on how relaxing and great my videos are to watch if you're sort of stressed or anxious. A lot of people have commented saying that they watch them whenever they're feeling anxious, which I absolutely love. Just the idea of them helping someone in that way. And so, yeah, I mean, I suppose going back to your question in terms of my videos being like a journal I personally have never really seen it like that for me it's like work but I just love doing it I get excited to put the video together if I know that I filmed the footage but I suppose looking back on work that I've done it is a little bit like a journal for me because it allows me to sort of look back on what I've done I know that at the end of 2020 it was such a stressful year for everybody and all I could really do was paint. So I painted, I think in 2020, I painted like a ridiculous amount of paintings. And I was able to go back and look at all the process of each painting because I had the video footage and I made this little compilation of all the pieces that I'd made over the course of the year and posted it on my social media. That was really, I guess, cathartic in a way. But yeah, I guess it, in some ways it is like a, like a journal. Just going back to that, ASMR element I think what I didn't realize when I was younger when I was watching shows like Smart and I now hear the songs that they used on Smart and I immediately kind of get transported back to those sort of ASMR pieces of TV they did did you ever take any inspiration from those shows or you know either as an artist or just be helped by them when you were a child growing up you know that's a great question because I know that I watched them it was like smart and art attack I think were the two that I watched when I was growing up I mean they must have had some kind of impact because I obviously loved them and I watched them every day but 
do you know what we've spoken about this previously like I, I have such a poor memory when it comes to my childhood so I couldn't tell you honestly whether that's gone in in some way <laughs> maybe but I think because of the the subject matter of my artwork I think more the shows like the, well basically the shows based around animals and stuff I used to watch a lot of Beatrix Potter it was this old really old school it was Peter Rabbit and Benjamin Bunny or whatever it was called and for me the sort of ASMR comes from um, and I posted a video of this recently on my social media it's the beginning sequence of Beatrix Potter and there's this like beautiful music by I can't remember who wrote the music for it. It's like Miriam someone. And then there's this scene with like animals hopping along in the rain and bunny rabbits. And for me, I just get the shivers because that's what I used to watch when I was a kid. And I think that's where I drew inspiration from personally. I want to move on to how you went from the side hustle artistry to the full-time kind of venture. Because before you were an artist, you were a teacher and you did other bits and pieces whilst painting as well. Was there a moment when you decided to pursue it full time or was it a gradual process? And then how big a step out of your comfort zone was that when it came? Yeah, so it definitely yeah, it wasn't an overnight decision for me. I think in terms of, you know, becoming an artist, I was quite old. Well, not old at all, but, you know, I wasn't exactly like I wasn't straight out of art school or whatever, or straight out of college. I wasn't like living at home with my parents. So I couldn't make some of the decisions that maybe people a lot younger than me could about becoming an artist. I think even when I went to university, when I say old, I say it, you know, in a tongue in cheek way, because when I went to university, I was considered like a mature student, even though I was only in my, you know, twenties or something. Yeah, before that, I did like several different jobs in film industry and television industry and stuff. And I jumped around doing various different jobs and then, yeah, became a primary school teacher. And so by the time I decided this is what I want to do, I, yeah, I sort of had to do a lot of thinking about how I was going to make that work financially. I sort of had bills to pay and outgoings and stuff. And so, yeah, I had to gradually reduce my hours at the school I went from being a primary school teacher to working in the school full time but I was more doing like tutoring and interventions and supply work and stuff and then that became a part-time job and then there was a sort of awkward moment in between where I was part-time at the school and part-time art but my art wasn't quite making enough money so really I was just really poor (laughs) for a while and really struggling financially and then yeah my art eventually took off and then I was able to stop doing the schoolwork and make art my full-time profession. Teaching is a a passion for so many people, Sophie, and it clearly was for you as well. Mm. Obviously, it's fraught with many, many challenges too. Despite art being your passion you wanted to pursue, did you feel any degree of sadness or or maybe even separation anxiety because you were were leaving the profession and all the children you were undoubtedly helping? I mean, there was definitely an element of that. Yeah, like you say, teaching does have its challenges, but it also has the children that you teach and it has just so many. I mean, this, I was really lucky because the school that I worked at was so lovely and full of really lovely teachers and teachers and parents and stuff. It was sad in a way. And it in some ways it was quite, I would say serendipitous. It was just good timing because the children that I had when I first started at the school, when they were very young, when I finally had my last year at the school, they had just left year six to go off to secondary school. So it was kind of perfect because the kids that I had seen through the school then went off and left and I made my peace with it kind of thing. But, you know, having said that, I think that teaching and working with children kind of naturally comes into what I do anyway now. I get emails from schools all the time asking if I'll come in and talk or send them a video or you know even just saying oh I've showed shown some of the children your work at, at school and we've like created our own and then sending me pictures of the kids work so in some ways I still kind of do teach a little bit um, and I think inspiring the next generation to be interested in nature and conservation is really important so. Now your passion is your work what challenges has that brought about that perhaps didn't exist when you were doing it as a a hobby or a modest side hustle you know for example working on weekends working on evenings and I guess as well when we spoke off air the isolation element of being a solo artist not a musician solo artist but a solo (laughs) artist working solo yeah 
it definitely has its challenges. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say that I absolutely hate it and it's terrible, but it's not always amazing. It is quite lonely, especially when you've worked working at a school. You're always surrounded by people, and not only are you surrounded by people, but you're also surrounded by little people that require your constant attention and always need something from you so to go from that intense environment to being completely alone all the time or 90% of the time is intense and very lonely so you have to be quite okay with being alone and I always say like people that have these interests and these passions and then decide to go for it for a living because because some people have a passion or they'll have an interest and they'll say oh yeah I love it but I wouldn't want to do it for a living But then there are some people that go for it. And I always say to them, be prepared for it to be a completely different dynamic when it's your job, because suddenly you have to do it. There's no like, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. You know, you have to do it to make a living and to pay your bills or your rent or your mortgage. It almost becomes a little bit harder to get motivated at times and you can burn out and you can get sort of like these creative blocks which I know we've spoken about and yeah it's not always easy but because you have the passion the underlying passion you can kind of get yourself through it we'll get to creativity and artist block in a second Sophie but I want to talk about the industry just quickly because from the outside looking in to many the art world can seem stereotypically quite cliquey or classist or privileged or maybe even snobby thankfully your experience of it hasn't been that but what has been your experience and can you tell me a little bit about that and then maybe how social media has perhaps helped you as an artist and democratized the art world in perhaps it wasn't 40 30 even 20 years ago you are spot on i think the art world can be quite cutthroat in that sense and my specific area of art which is wildlife art at the moment doesn't really have a place in the art world as being cutting edge and contemporary and new because i mean wildlife art has been around forever but some people would say that wildlife art isn't considered the same level as some other styles of contemporary art which are in the galleries at the moment so it can be quite difficult as a wildlife artist particularly to break through into that market but yeah like you say social media has played a huge role in making a bit more accessible and a bit more inclusive for artists to put their artwork out there and in some ways that's amazing because artists that otherwise wouldn't be able to sort of mix in certain spheres are you know selling their artwork to big dealers and in big exhibitions and entering competitions that they might not have even heard about if it wasn't for social media. I mean, I don't think I personally would be where I am in my career at the moment if it wasn't for social media. But on the other hand, it means that anyone can put their artwork out there. And so the market is a lot more saturated with artists. So it has its pros and its cons. But yeah, for me personally, it's it's mostly been pros, I would say. I want to move back to artist block because it's something that we spoke about off air, Sophie. How Do you deal with it when it comes? What tools do you use to maybe manage it or overcome it? And then tell me about the kind of creative process about picking maybe an animal or a landscape to paint. So artist block is something that, in my opinion, I think most people probably get if they're in some kind of creative industry. They either get a block or like they become burnt out. For me, it's more I become burnt out because... I think having an artist block kind of maybe implies that you have a lack of ideas or a lack of motivation to do it or you become a bit overwhelmed. For me, I mean, because I paint from nature and nature is just so vast, I have so many ideas, so much inspiration and I have the motivation. But for me, it kind of becomes overwhelming because I have so much of that inspiration and so many things that I could do. And like you say, there's so many animals that I could paint. And I've then got to like choose which ones to do. So many ideas. And even on my computer, I've got like files and files of reference photos and inspiration boards and stuff like that. And it, it can be really, really overwhelming. And, you know, if I sort of have it in my mind that I'm going to create a piece for a certain exhibition or a competition, I've then got to decide what to do. I know recently I've just sort of started a piece that I'm going to be donating to the Explorers Against Extinction 
charity auction and I was just so overwhelmed with what to paint and I even I kind of wanted the decision to be out of my hands if I'm honest and I even emailed the charity and said like look what do you want me to paint because I don't know and then they sort of said why don't you just ask your social media followers so I did a poll on Twitter and I think I gave like five animals or something that they could choose from and honestly probably about three of those I kind of really wanted to do and then the rest maybe two one or two I wasn't that fussed about and the one that won was the giraffe which I wasn't actually that fussed about it wasn't the top of my list to paint and then I started painting it and suddenly all this inspiration came and I was really excited about it and now I think it's one of my favorite pieces so far yeah it's nice to get other people involved and like I said before social media really spurs me on my followers spur me on a lot when I'm feeling demotivated and have to force myself to paint their comments really help a lot one other tool you said you used was gratitude lists Sophie can you explain what that is for the listeners and how they help your mental health yeah so trying to practice gratitude is I mean it's not a new concept it's certainly something I've only been doing for the last year and a half ish I would say maybe the last year and you know you can do it sort of in your mind just trying to think of things that you're grateful for but I personally for me it just works better by writing them down because you kind of I think when you write anything your brain waves kind of change into more of a naturally meditative state same with when you're painting you can go off into sort of like a meditative maybe alpha brain waves or something so for me writing it down just gets me more in the zone and I just make lists of what I'm grateful for whether it's the smallest thing like I've got roof over my head well it's not a small thing but it's a big thing but you've got a roof over your head food in the cupboards I've got money in the bank whatever it is and sometimes it can be clutching at straws and other times you just feel all this you know waves of gratitude and it instantly puts me in a good mood it's really for me it's like a drug I really thrive off it if I'm ever in a bad mood or feeling a bit tired or run down I'll go to my journal and write down a list of things I'm grateful for and then I also have a list of goals that I want to achieve and I'll tick them off when they're completed and almost all of my goals get completed when I say goals I don't mean oh I'm going to do this like I'll I'll finish this painting or I'll do this it can be stuff like I'm going to I don't know I'm going to win a competition this year or I'm going to find one pound on the co- on the floor, whatever it is, just something to like reaffirm my faith in the universe and it always happens. And then I, what I can do is when I'm feeling a bit low, I go back and I look, look through all of the goals that I have achieved and it's just a nice little reminder that things are going the way that they should. We talk a lot about making mistakes and failure on this podcast, Sophie, and normalising that. You're quite unique in that you show your well when you want to you show your followers when you've made a mistake on a particular piece of art is that authenticity important for you and then is there one particular mistake you feel comfortable sharing and and what did you learn from it most of all yeah i definitely make an effort to show the whole process of painting on my social medias for one i i think that my followers just deserve to know the truth they kind of deserve to know what really goes on behind closed doors I mean obviously I don't post videos of me like sat in my pajamas painting and stuff there is an element of the falseness of social media to some degree but I know that some artists will only post the finished product or they'll post progress pictures but they'll completely cut out the fact that they've like painted over a certain bit and redone it and some other artists I know are really really honest about it and I always just think that honesty is the best policy and it just shows other artists that are aspiring to be full-time artists or just do it for fun it shows that everybody makes mistakes and great paintings don't just fall out of trees and then they just they are just there it takes hours of preparation and you might want to paint over a certain bit and redo it and for me that's really really important I think because I've done it throughout the whole process of every painting that I've done I wouldn't say there has been one particular mistake that I've made because I think I make a mistake in every single painting that I do, to be honest. (laughs) But yeah, I've definitely realised over the years that it's better to paint over a piece if you're not happy with it and start from scratch than to keep 
chipping away at a piece again and again you know just changing lots and lots of little bits hoping that it will go okay because you actually probably waste more time doing that than if you just start again and i think the same can be said about anything in life you know any project you're doing sometimes it's better to just walk away save time and then come back to it with a fresh set of eyes and uh restart the whole thing rather than just changing this and changing that and you're still not happy with it and it just takes forever sometimes as a final question before we move on sophie doing painting for as long as you have what has it taught you about yourself do you think oh god so much really because i think when you paint on your own i mean i know that some artists they have like sort of shared studios and stuff but i do paint on my own and it's taught me a lot about being alone and a lot about myself when you spend not just painting but in general if you spend a huge chunk of your time alone it kind of forces you to get a bit introspective and to look at yourself and what makes you tick what makes you unhappy why does it make you unhappy even not necessarily the process of painting but just in general sitting with myself has been one of the most invaluable life experiences that i've had so far Spending, I mean, obviously lockdown was awful for a number of reasons, but it was also one of the best things that's probably happened to me, if I'm honest. And, you know, I feel very privileged saying that because I know that terrible things happened to people and people lost loved ones and stuff like that. But in terms of being forced to slow down my life, sit within myself and do the work was really, really amazing. And also, you know, throwing myself into a career that I... I'm really passionate about has taught me a lot about what's important to me as well what I want to do with my life and why and what the meaning of life is really about and personally I don't think the meaning of life is doing a job that you hate for money that you're going to spend and then you you die <laughs> I just don't think that's a good way to look at life we talked about Sophie Green the fine artist and your artistic journey i want to dive a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey sophie so i ask all my special guests this question first tell me about your early life maybe teenage years family and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint who's the sophie we meet here well in terms of my family and my upbringing very ordinary in my opinion very normal I would say I think most families you know have their moments and everybody's human so everybody has their issues and stuff but yeah I had a, a nice relatively happy childhood mental health I mean I probably have I mean I, I don't know but maybe one of the earliest experiences of mental health issues that you might have had on the show because i mean correct me if i'm wrong but yeah i would say from from the age of three i would guess it was very apparent that i had something going on and then it wasn't until i was sort of four years old five that i got diagnosed with selective mutism which is like a very severe anxiety disorder and it just basically prevents you from being able to talk in a lot of social settings and a lot of situations so building on that, Sophie, do you think enough people know about selective mutism because it is a speech and language communication need? And I guess when you were that young, people might have just thought you were ridiculously shy. Was that a perspective that was held or did people kind of know after it persisted that, oh, maybe it's more than just shyness? Nowadays, mental health and anxiety is just so much more understood and widely spoken about but back then I mean we're talking nearly like 30 years ago they just thought I was shy or very my dad still to this day thinks that I was just being stubborn like it was a control thing I've had conversations with him where I'm like no it's it's a disorder like I couldn't physically speak and he's like yeah yeah you were just trying to control the situation I get it <laughs> and uh, yeah it, it wasn't really understood I think the professionals kind of got it but yeah, it was difficult because not only were other children sort of saying to me, like, why don't you just talk? But some adults as well. And yeah, I remember my sister in particular when I was, because I, I went to an infant school and then moved up into a junior school, two separate schools. And I remember when I was sort of getting to the end of year two, which was the end of infant school, 
before moving on to a different school for year three my sister was like you know if you don't talk by year three then you're going to get bullied at your next school and that was a real real stress because I I knew that it was true because I I mean I had been bullied at infant school and I was so scared because I really wanted to talk but I just couldn't it was really really difficult I did end up actually being able to speak right before I left that infant school I managed to just I think I just said a few words to a a friend of mine at lunchtime in a private situation and then I kind of got thrown in at the deep end a little bit because one of the teachers heard me talking and then she got the whole year group in to the classroom and sat everyone on the floor and made me read a book to everybody and then afterwards I remember all these children were coming up to me and going say dog say cat like giving me requests like of words to say and it was so terrible but you know I don't know if that was a good thing or not because I did end up then speaking I went up to junior school and I was a chatterbox I mean I'm trying to figure out what was tough love your sister telling you you'd be bullied if you didn't speak or your teacher discovering you could actually utter a word and then getting you to speak in front of your entire year group I mean did you see it as tough love or did you see it as deeply traumatic words and moments and events i mean yeah being told that i was going to be bullied that was traumatic i hated absolutely hated infant school every day it would be a struggle to get me to school i would like almost make myself throw up with fear of going to school the teachers there were lovely the other children were like it was just a nice little village school it wasn't particularly a terrible place to be i was just so filled with anxiety for whatever reason and uh, yeah it was it was traumatising, I think. But, you know, I was only between four and seven. So, so, so young. Luckily, I seem to have like blocked most of that out of my memory. <laughs> After the moment where you spoke in front of the class, do you remember at any point when your speech became normalised? Like, was there a big feeling or a big weight had been lifted? And, and was that a big moment in your life? Or did it just kind of become quite gradual and there wasn't like a oh my god I can speak again now my life can take all sort of different pathways you know I don't really remember to be honest that's probably going to be the answer to a lot of your questions <laughs> as you will soon soon find out <laughs> my memory is not the best I think it's a defense thing but yeah I do remember the situation where I had to read in front of the whole year group and I can't remember whether the next day at school I went back to not talking or if I then was freed from all of my anxiety, I would imagine it would be quite a gradual thing. And certainly I know that by the time I went up to junior school, I was okay to talk to the teachers and stuff. Mm. But, you know, as a teacher, you know, I've had experience since with children with selective mutism. It's a bit of a spectrum now, I think, because I've worked with children that have selective mutism that I have heard talking. And for me, that wasn't the case. I couldn't utter a word to anybody. I want to move on to the other big part of your mental health journey, Sophie, which is grief. And this is something I've talked about with so many, just checking in pod guests. For your case, it was parental grief. So you lost your mum to breast cancer when you were 19 years old. If you could, can you just tell me first about when she was diagnosed and how you felt? Although I understand, given what we've just said, that your memories during this period aren't crystal clear, are they? No, actually, the, the whole journey kind of started when I was 10, I think. I was a lot younger when she first got diagnosed with breast cancer. I didn't really understand much of what was going on, to be honest. I do remember there were conversations being had. Looking back now, it's funny because I remember hearing a conversation my mum and my dad were having in the living room, and I was sort of eavesdropping, and they were talking about breasts, I guess, and breastfeeding and stuff, and my my mum was going... I didn't get it. Like I, you know, I breastfed all of the kids. I don't know if she was just saying this, you know, because supposedly breastfeeding is supposed to be good for preventing breast cancer or something. I don't know. But I remember overhearing this and thinking, oh, mum's pregnant again. That was what I thought was going on at first. And then I don't really remember ever being sat down and told what was happening. I, the next thing I knew, she was just going into hospital and having all these surgeries and then the surgery went wrong and she had to have it again and then she had to have a mastectomy and she had lymph nodes it was just this whole big mess and then I was really all over the place emotionally while my mum was in hospital because it was the longest 
period of time that I'd been away from her since I had been born because we were just quite a homey family. We were just always at mm. home. My dad, bless him, big six foot three firefighter, wasn't exactly equipped to deal with a child's grief at that point. And his wife is going through treatment for cancer. So I don't think he was really, you know, in a position to comfort me that well. But yeah, it was definitely impactful. Again, I can't remember huge amounts of it, to be honest. I do remember locking myself away a lot. I didn't want to be in the house. I didn't want to be near her, my mum. Especially when she had chemotherapy, I remember she was terrified of having it because I think most people, if they get a cancer diagnosis and then they have the surgery, that's one thing. But then to be told that you're going to have this gruelling treatment afterwards and lose all your hair and all of this, that's almost just as traumatic as... The diagnosis in itself, obviously I haven't had it, luckily, so I, I wouldn't know for sure, but I can imagine. And I know that my mum was really, really upset about the fact that she had to have chemo. And I remember not wanting to be near her at all. Yeah, I would sort of like hide myself away in the garage and stuff like that. But again, like I, I have very vague memories of it, but I, I know that it happened because of my family have told me and stuff. But it was an intense time for someone so young. Yeah, she got better and she was fine for a number of years. You said that when she was diagnosed and you were 10, 11, and then she went into remission for eight years and then obviously she, she passed away when you were 19. But you said that in your mind, you thought she was diagnosed in February, the year she passed and died a month later. Like Looking back, why do you think your mind did this? Was it a way of protecting you? from your grieving process or putting you in a state of denial? How do you sort of reflect on that disassociation, I guess, or, or the distorted reality that it created for you? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I've had, I've obviously thought about this a lot over the past year or two, because it's only been a year or two that I've actually known how long she was ill for. And yeah, like you say, it was strange because when she passed away, I went around telling everybody yeah, she was diagnosed in February and then died a few weeks later in March. And I genuinely believe that. And I said to my friend, even a few months ago, I said to her, you know that she was ill for like over a year, maybe a year and a half. And my friend was who, one of my best friends who's known me since we were like kids was like, what? Like, no, I remember specifically you told me like after literally just after she died, that she'd only been diagnosed like a few weeks ago was really strange. I've spoken to a therapist about it as well and she sort of said it was kind of like a dissociation. It's a form of PTSD, like an extreme PTSD where it just didn't happen in my mind. I know it did now, but I still don't have the memories. And we like went on holiday as a family. We had our last Christmas together. We had all these like big moments as a family. And in my mind, she wasn't ill, even though I was there in the house while she was unwell. I was going to the hospital every day and visiting. Yeah, it was it was almost so traumatic. I couldn't even it didn't 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 happen. Didn't happen to me. Mm. You said it's only in the last year or so that you've really started to piece these memories together and get clarity from your family members about what truly happened and the timeline of the grief. Simon Thomas writes in his book, Love Interrupted, about losing his wife, Gemma, to cancer. And he said that time doesn't heal, but it does change the way you approach grief and your outlook about it, which is a little bit of a contrarian opinion to kind of time always heals and all that sort of stuff. Is that a perspective that you find any commonality with? Yeah, I think grief is it's just such a huge topic and everybody is so different everybody handles things in different ways and so the phrase time heals for me I totally disagree with because you know for me personally I mean I didn't grieve because in my head it hadn't really happened it didn't even process that she had died really you know I've got a good friend who her dad passed away literally like a few days after my mum passed away really surprising they weren't expecting it he died very suddenly and we were having a conversation about it recently because you know on facebook when you have like memories that pop up both of us have had memories pop up from 11 years ago today this and we were like out on nights out and stuff and I'm like how like literally your dad had just died my mum had just died and it was like nothing had happened 
we just didn't process it at all. And then on the other hand, I've had situate like you know other things that have happened or that I've been upset about or breakups, whatever. And time, it was it's just irrelevant in my personal opinion. And for some people, time does heal. But yeah, grief is a really strange, strange concept in my opinion. I mean, it's taken me years and years and years to even comprehend what happened and I I think I said to you before off air I only found out my mum had been ill for as long as she was because my dad had just mentioned it in passing and at the time I was too nervous and sort of ashamed to say to him oh my god I thought it was in my head it's been a few weeks and then literally a couple of weeks ago I spoke to my dad and I told him about this and I was so embarrassed to say it I was so embarrassed to be like I thought she was ill for three weeks or something before she died and my dad was just like yeah but that's because you know you were so young and it was such a traumatic thing to go through and grief Mm. is so different and I mean I've I spoke to my dad as well about because one of my brothers passed away when he was like seven and my dad was like the grief between losing your mum and losing Ollie your brother was just like you couldn't you can't compare them and you feel almost ashamed and guilty for comparing them and I felt sadder about breakups than I I did about my mum dying and I was so like oh god I'm a terrible person but it's just how my brain and my body kind of coped with that. I want to talk about your mum as a person now Sophie because I think lots of discussions about grief miss out on this part of the conversation so tell me about your mum and the kind of person she was. Well, she was quite, from what I remember, she was very quiet and calm for us, like for us kids, I think. She was the one, you know, my dad was like the tough, scary one that we would be afraid to get in trouble with. But my mum was the more sort of like calm, maybe a little bit complacent one. She was a teacher as well, actually. She was a, she actually worked as a teacher at the infant school that I was a selective mute at. <laughs> and so she was just so loved by all the kids and all the staff. She was like the Miss Honey of um, the school. And I remember after she passed away, there was a sort of like a memorial at her school. And all these children, like not just the kids at her school, but the kids that had moved on and were older from all three, like from the junior and the secondary school, came down. They were just so upset and there were kids like crying hysterically and hugging each other. And again, looking back, I was just standing there like, oh, this is nice. I sh- it should have been me that was like hysterically crying. But again, it was just straight over my head. I was like in a haze. But yeah, she was so well loved by everyone that she she knew. Yeah, she was, she was um, yeah, just a nice person, really. Your mum passed when you were still quite a young woman. As you got older and had more life experiences or achieved you know all the milestones that you have have there been times when you wish she was here to see them or do you think she's always watching you and seeing them a bit of both I think obviously the big milestones like graduating from university there's been like weddings and babies being born in the family and stuff like that and she hasn't physically been here for any of that and I know that she you know she would have been desperate to meet her grandkids and you know see her kids get married you know she wasn't there for my brother's wedding and she won't be there for my sister's wedding and yeah it's gut-wrenching you definitely do carry with you through life this kind of element of needing a mother figure I think I've always kind of naturally been drawn to like other mothers and mother figures or mothers of boyfriends or whoever because I don't know if there's just something in me that is crying out for a mother figure I'm not really sure but I have to admit I am very jealous of the people like my friends that have their mums and have really good relationships with their mums and can you know have all these long talks with them and stuff because I never really got that because I mean she died when I was just getting to that point where I was wanted to talk about like grown-up things and you know dads dads are great but they're different it's not the same and they obviously haven't been through any of the like female things that women (laughs) go through yeah there's that but then there's also the other side of that like I do believe in well I'm quite spiritual and I do believe that death is not the end and so there's a part of me that thinks you know she's in some ways it's better because she's always 
with me and everything that I do she's always there but also she's not in any of this pain and suffering anymore which is the main thing I know your memories aren't amazing from that time but how do you carry the memories that you do have of her with you now are there any sayings or mannerisms or particular stories that you carry with you or perhaps a piece of advice that she gave you as a as an affirmation yeah there's definitely like sayings and stuff that I catch myself saying yeah like mannerisms little phrases things like that and especially with the nieces and nephews you catch yourself like talking to them like like my mum used to talk to us as kids and stuff which is lovely I think when you lose a parent at a fairly young age you tend to more take after the living parent because you've had more time with them I guess so you pick up on more of their their personality and their mannerisms and their phrases but I always like it when a little bit of my mum comes out it definitely definitely happens and given everything you've achieved since your mum passed Sophie and obviously having to show this incredible amount of resilience and mental strength if she was listening to this part and I'm sure she is somewhere what do you think you would say to her and what do you think she'd say to you oh god (laughs) i don't know that's a really tough one first of all if she was listening to the pod i'd probably ask is it all right if i talk about this (laughs) (laughs) because there's always like thing about mental health is it's such a personal and private thing Mm. and i think the the reason why i do a podcast like this and interviews like this is because I think it's so important to normalize talking about grief because I think that our generation is probably the first generation where it has become normalized to talk about grief and to talk about mental health certainly I know that my parents generation it was a lot less spoken about and the generation before that even less and people used to just kind of suffer in silence so there is kind of that like feeling of should I really be talking about personal things and family things to the public? But then at the same time, I also know that there's so many people that have experienced similar things, you know, losing parents or siblings or partners or kids. And I think it's important to recognise that we're all human. We all go through, you know, grief and mental health issues and stuff like that. If my mum was listening, I'd probably would like to ask her what she thought of everything that was happening in my life. Obviously, that's sort of like the main the main thing that I think about often is if I'm making a decision about something, I'll always think, oh, my mum probably knows what's the right thing to do or what's the wrong thing to do. Or if, you know, this is going to work out or if she probably already knows and I don't know what to do and I wish she would tell me, you know, even like through a dream or something, like just tell me what to do and what her opinions are. But yeah, probably advice would be the main the main one. And as a final question, how do you think this period of grief has shaped you into the person speaking to me today? And what has it taught you about yourself? Or maybe even what have you taught others maybe in your family about grief and how to kind of process it and, and access it in the right way and healthy way I mean grief in general has taught me a lot about for me personally a lot about life and the shortness of life and the meaning of life and how important it is just to be happy and to do what you love and to be nice to people and to not judge or compare yourself to other people because we're all human and we're all here for such a tiny amount of time really in the grand scheme of things and yet we spend so much time worrying about like the opinions of others and you know how other people are dressed or what car this person's driving or you know stuff that really does not matter at all and um i think you know it's made me a lot more sympathetic and empathetic as a person a lot kinder a lot more welcoming and kind to people of all walks of life the thing about grief is as i said earlier is it's so different for everyone so in terms of teaching other people about grief, I don't think there's much that I can teach apart from that everyone is different because, I mean, I've had fr- close friends that have lost family members, parents and siblings and stuff. And I think there is a sort of element of, well, Sophie's been through it, so she knows how to handle that. You know, she knows what to say or she knows how to handle that. And there is nothing you can say in that moment. And there is nothing, no, like pearls of wisdom because everybody is different and so you know my friend losing her brother would be completely different to me losing my mum all I can do is say 
you know, I'm here and I've been through something similar and it's going to be different for everyone. We have come to our final topic of conversation in the podcast, Sophie, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a light and general chat and natter about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Well, at the moment, I think it's pretty good, I would say. I mean, I definitely have my have my days. I think women in general just have that though. <laughs> I think that's a woman thing. <laughs> just you have days where you're like, oh God. But for the most part, I think not only am I feeling good, but I've also, I feel like I've got a whole toolbox full of things that I can now use if I do have days where I feel a bit low. For me personally, I've always been an anxious person. I haven't ever really been a depressed person. And I know that some people have depression, some people have anxiety, some people have both. For me, I'm an anxious person. But, you know, everybody has days where they feel a bit blah. But yeah, right now, pretty good. Excellent. And what age do you think you were? Obviously, you had selective mutism when you were three. But what age do you think you were when you first became self-aware of your mental health and realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I mean, growing up, in some ways, I kind of knew about anxiety because I used to have very bad panic attacks quite regularly. And I know that my mum had them when she was younger. But I only know this now because my dad told me as an adult. But I don't think my mum ever told us that. But I remember having these panic attacks and my mum would kind of sit with me at the end of the bed and I think she just knew what to do because she'd had them and can't really like talk someone out of a panic attack you can't force them out of it so she just sat and would put her hand on my legs and I would just sort of have this panic attack and then eventually it would go but she used to sort of say she made it very clear that it was all in the mind and she would just call it having a funny turn (laughs) and then that was that so I kind of knew like anxiety was all in the mind I used to get tummy aches all the time like children often do and my mum made it very clear like you're thinking yourself into it but really it wasn't until I was an adult kind of in my early 20s that I really started to think about why I was having panic attacks and why I'd had them since I was a child and what anxiety means in general and even the last year I've probably learned more about it within myself than I had in in the last you know well in my entire adult life really what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so things people might say to you it could be a sound it could be a location could be a social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet well a big one for me there's a few but the big one is so when I was a child someone threw up on my head while I was asleep and I woke up covered in vomit and I developed a severe phobia of vomit. So for years and years and years, any time I felt sick, I would instantly panic that I was going to throw up and then I would have a panic attack because I was terrified of throwing up. And if I ever heard the word sick, like if I was on a train and someone said, oh, I feel sick, or even if someone went, oh, that's sick, like I would pick up on the word from like miles away and I'd instantly like have a pan not not straight away have a panic attack, but my heart would start racing. I'd be like sweating. It was just horrendous. That was one of the reasons was the fear of sick. And still to this day, I don't like it. I mean, becoming a teacher and working with kids, I became a lot more tolerant to it. But even now, if I feel physically sick for whatever reason, even if I'm just dehydrated or something, I instantly my heart's racing, and I'm like, oh god, what if I throw up? And I live alone, so, you know, like, throwing up's even worse when you haven't got anyone there. It's just it's just a thing for me. But apart from that, sometimes it just happens. And, and it might even just be because I'm, like, particularly tired or stressed about something to do with work or whatever. And then it just comes on and I just get myself into a state. But luckily, at the moment, I don't have panic attacks that often anymore i remember i went through a phase sort of like oh it would have been end of 2019 beginning of 2020 i've spoken about this before where i had a like a cancer scare and it lasted like six months before i found out it was benign basically but in that time i was having like scans i was having biopsies like 
and then I ended up having surgery to remove this tumor and the whole time the doctors were like oh we can't really tell you what it is you know they didn't want to say you know it's probably fine because they're not allowed to like give you that hope basically you know I was living alone just like constantly thinking about potentially dying and then the more stressed I was getting my like lymph nodes and my glands were all swelling up and then I was like oh god I've, I've definitely I'm gonna die like this is gonna happen and I think I've now probably got a bit of an irrational fear anyway of getting cancer because of what happened with my mum but yeah I went through this really tough stressful time and my body was just on high alert for months and months and they told me right before Christmas they were like we're gonna operate in the new year happy Christmas, <laughs> see you in the new year for the surgery. So I had all of Christmas just thinking about this and I was supposed to be going to America and then going to Puerto Rico on a holiday for the New Year's Eve. I was so stressed and I arrived in America at Colorado airport and had maybe the biggest panic attack I've ever had in my life. And we had to like pull over in a car park in a petrol station just off like some road in Colorado and I was just like on the floor having this massive panic attack next to this like shoe that someone had left it was really it was really terrible but looking back now I laugh about it because it was just so ridiculous but then yeah and I I literally couldn't eat for like days I was just and I'm so skinny anyway I was just in the worst physical state ever and yeah that was probably the worst my anxiety's gotten and then had a, an amazing trip and a really nice holiday in Puerto Rico, came back and had the surgery and found out just before, literally like days before we went into lockdown, found out that I didn't have cancer. Yeah, and then we went into lockdown and I had the whole of lockdown to sort of like really go into what had just happened and try and relax my central nervous system a little bit. <laughs> I guess the endorphin rush of being cancer free or not having it at all and then going into lockdown and isolation must have been a very weird experience but on to on to positive things outside of art what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones work for you and maybe which ones that you've tried and given a go but haven't okay well so my daily routine probably incorporates a lot of these these methods i would say i've just got into a really nice routine of having having the morning to really settle my mind and make myself feel really happy before I then go and work because I've noticed that when I wake up and start work straight away I'm less motivated I'm just a bit more sort of like all over the place I procrastinate a lot more whereas if I just give myself the mornings and you know I suffer a lot from like guilt and shame as well like if I don't work as soon as I wake up then I feel like such a slob yeah I feel a bit like guilty about being like lazy or whatever it might be even though I work like probably more than full-time hours because I work like seven days a week and I just work ridiculous amounts of hours but every morning I'll sort of wake up I'll have a nice leisurely breakfast give myself whatever I want and need I'll do writing in my journal like gratitude lists and goals and stuff like that even what are those things called that you repeat to yourself not a mantra but uh, affirmations love and affirmation and then I do yoga which I love and that's one of the things that for years and years people were telling me to do and I was just kind of like yeah whatever like maybe I'll do it one day and I just never did and then I did it over lockdown and I absolutely fell in love with it like I've tried meditating for years and I'm just not very good at it it's a difficult thing to do to meditate it's a practice you have to keep working at it but I find that yoga really helps me to learn how to meditate because you kind of instinctively clear your mind and focus on your breathing anyway when you're doing it so 100% recommend yoga to anyone you're going for walks as well getting out in nature always always helps my mental health regardless of the weather or where I'm going something that I did every day during lockdown was go for a walk around the woods or to the beach and exercise eating well like I play a lot of tennis in the summer and always feel great afterwards. And yeah, I, f- I do find that looking after your body from within, it helps to look after your mind as well. And as a final question, Sophie, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues 
or just their general mental health if they want to do it? Well, I think normalising these conversations is a big one, which it seems to be happening a lot more nowadays. People like you and me are just in some kind of echo chamber where the more open you are to talking about mental health, the more you tend to see these adverts pop up or podcasts coming up and stuff like that about mental health. I mean, I know there must be a huge group of the population who still don't talk about mental health. And I think it's important to normalise that for everyone, not just for the people that already do, if that makes sense. I feel like I'm quite lucky because a lot of my friends are not only extremely open about mental health, but also huge advocates of talking about it. And like, you know, one of my good friends is always on social media shouting about mental health and the importance of talking about it. And, you know, he supports like charities as well, focused on mental health. So I, I feel like I'm living in an environment with people who are quite mental health friendly anyway. And I know that that's not the case for a lot of people and certainly older generations. But yeah, I think it's just sort of getting the message out there as much as possible. Podcasts like this are amazing for that. Advertisements and, you know, even like sometimes you see pictures on bus stops about encouraging like men specifically to open up and talk about their mental health because i think that with women it's stereotypically seen as a lot easier to talk about <laughs> mental health or just talking in general but yeah men not so much and i sort of have some like really deep conversations with my male friends about mental health and grief especially and one of my friends recently lost his mom and me and him have been talking a lot about it lately and i know that he said to me I couldn't really talk to other men about this sort of thing. You're encouraging men to talk to men. You were saying earlier you've had some great conversations with your male friends that you never thought you would have had before. And yeah, it's just almost reaffirming that it's okay to have mental health issues or to have things going on because other men have them as well. It's really important. I mean, I don't know if I have any huge groundbreaking ideas personally to how we can, you know, but I think we're definitely on the right track. We're on the up in that sense. What a great way to end the podcast. Sophie Green, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you so much to Sophie Green for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me and talking all about her journey of grief and mutism as well as her artistic journey. I'll put some links to where you can follow Sophie on social media, buy one of her prints or just watch a soothing ASMR video in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. I will sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked it, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help us with those very precious algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can visit our Patreon and support us there by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that and you just want to give a one-off donation, you can also visit our GoFundMe page, which is in the link in our link tree, which is in the bio across all our social channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay.